I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. Hope you had a very happy Halloween. This year's Parallax Views Halloween-themed series uh, went a little bit haywire. I actually still have two episodes that I was intending to release for the spooky season that, unfortunately, I wasn't able to publish before the holiday. So expect those two episodes in the near future, probably later this week, or next week. On this edition of the show, however, we're shifting away from the spooky season themes to discuss a topic that has become rather timely in light of issues like the pandemic and climate change. Now, given that it's November, I'm sure that many of my American listeners are preparing for Thanksgiving and looking forward to that huge dinner with stuffing, turkey, mashed potatoes, and the rest. But while the feast may be great, the social interactions that come with the holiday aren't necessarily always the best. In fact, they can cause dread for a lot of people, especially when they have to talk to one of their relatives about a topic like, say, vaccination or climate change. Issues that have become increasingly divided along political lines. Joining us to discuss the phenomena of science denial are two psychologists, Gil Sinatra and Barbara Hoffer, authors of the new book, Science Denial, How It Happens and What to Do About It. For those of you dreading hearing that one relative at the turkey dinner, who's going to inevitably rant about how climate change is a hoax. Well, this episode is for you. And with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Gil Sinatra and Barbara Hoffer, authors of Science Denial, How It Happens and What to Do About It. Welcome to Parallax Views, Gil Sinatra and Barbara Hoffer, authors of Science Denial, Why It Happens and What to Do About It. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you for having us. Really good. So happy to be here with you, JG. So I wanted to start out by talking about this issue of science denial in the context of a lot of the current crises we face, such as climate change and COVID. And I guess just to drive the point home about why this book is so important, do we have any statistics on 
science denial when it comes to issues like COVID or climate change. I don't know, Gil, if you want to cover that or if you want to cover that, Barbara. I'll jump in. Um, one of the things I think psychologists know is that you can't just go ask people, are you a science denier? <laughs> you know, so we don't have stats like that. What we have are statistics that allow us to infer the degree to which people are not accepting what would be settled science. And those come from places like the Pew Charitable Trust, as of the Pew Research Center, um, the Yale Climate Communication Study, those kind of organizations are always collecting data on these things. And I think that gives us insight into denialism as well as resistance or doubt or those other sorts of things. And we try to cover all of those in the book, not just outright denialism, but what happens when people doubt and resist. And I think some of the things you can look at in terms of statistics is the number of people who are refusing vaccinations. So you can infer from behavior that there is some at least resistance going on. And for some people that may have very valid reasons and those are the people we still wanna persuade. For other people, it is outright denialism of the science. And there are also differences in those stats. You know, They're correlated with political party, region of the country, that sort of things in terms of where high denial is. Uh, for climate change, we often look at the Yale climate study and in that study, for example, 72% of those surveys think that climate change is happening and 57% think it has human causes. And this is really troubling when you think that scientists know for certain that there are human causes to climate change as the IPCC report revealed just a couple of weeks ago. And even more surprisingly, only 55% of those in the Yale study think that scientists think global warming is happening. And 25% of those surveyed think that there's considerable doubt among scientists, that they're in disagreement on this. And we can unpack all the reasons why that might be. There are sources that are manipulating those beliefs to their own advantage, Exxon, for example. So it, it isn't just that people are blindsided. There are reasons why their cognitive biases are exploited by corporations. And Gail, is there anything you'd like to add to that uh, sort of first question? No, I think Barbara covered that very well. So this may seem like, I, I said in my notes that this may seem like an odd question, but I feel like when we say science, a lot of people, uh, I, I think we have to get into what science is. And I was really interested in the ways that both of you described science in the book, particularly uh, science as a collective enterprise and a social activity. So let's get into that. What is uh, science and what isn't it for people that may have misunderstandings about it? Well, um, it's an, actually, it's a great question, JT, because I don't think the general public has a great sense of what science is. Science is a process. It isn't a collection of facts, but you know we may have remembered our high school textbooks as presenting facts about science, or at least we perceive them to be. And so that might be our conception of it generally, but it isn't a collection of facts. Science is a process and it's a process for understanding the natural world. And it helps us to make sense of that uh, natural world. And um, it is a collective enterprise because um, we hear lately 
uh, believe the science or trust the science, um, but it has to be the collective science that we would be more willing to put trust in. Barbara mentioned the IPCC report, and it's that kind of collective science that reveals a consensus with over 200 scientists contributing to that report, 14,000 citations to basic research contributing to that report. That's consensus science that we should understand and trust. Uh, so it's an important question what science is. It's not a collection of facts. It's an enterprise. It's a process. And it's ever evolving and changing, which is its strength, not its weakness. And you know, I think some people are unaware of how peer review works. You know, the fact that when things get published in scientific journals, that other people with expertise have weighed in and given copious feedback and helped improve what it is that people are saying. And yet still, there are times that science fails in that process. I mean, the notable one that, that most people know about is Andrew Wakefield, who tried to make a connection between autism and vaccines. And he not only had that article pulled from the journal it appeared in, The Lancet in, in Britain, but he lost his license in the process. And yet the anti-vax people still see him as a hero. So we have these problems of people, even when science has corrected itself and worked it out, there are people who want to believe what they want to believe. And I just wanted to add to that. I think uh, that line about science as, as a social activity in a collective enterprise, and I think that's the exact words uh, used in the book. I think that's really important because it's not it's not like a movie where, you know, oh, the one person makes this grand discovery and uh, you know, that's that, and they're the big hero. It really takes a, a, a village sort of, you know, uh, yeah. you have to have the peer review, you're working together to come to a consensus. It yeah. really is very social in how we end up making discoveries in science. And it takes multiple studies to get to that point. I mean, that we chip away bit by bit at scientific knowledge that it's accumulation of studies that people, uh, scientists rarely say they proved something. I mean, we just don't see that in scientific articles. You know, there's that need to say, okay, the more research will need to be done to make sure that this replicates. So in the book, you also differentiate, I think, between science denialism and science skepticism. Um, what, what do we mean by that? What, what is that sort of differentiation? Well, skepticism is a part of science. You want to be skeptical of a new or aberrant finding. Skepticism is, is a strength of science. We shouldn't um, sway from an overwhelming consensus view because one study now shows something different or um, anomalous. So skepticism plays an important role in science, and we certainly would agree with that. Um, but you can't be skeptic of everything and skepticism can run amok if you, you know, devolve into not trusting even the consensus science of the IPCC report or of vaccine safety, then you really are skirting into more dangerous territory of at least doubt, if not outright denial. So it can go too far. It's a healthy part of 
our understanding of science and how it works, but you can go too far with it. So you do have to be guarded in what you should be skeptical of. We talk about functional skepticism in the book. You know, when is it a good thing to be skeptical? Why are why do scientists prize skepticism? You know, you really are wanting to channel that when you're looking at a clickbait headline on headline online, and it sounds so appealing and amusing, and yet you want to dig deeper. Is this just one study? Was there a small number of people involved? How much can I trust this? Where did this appear? Who did the research? Who funded the research? Those are healthy functional aspects of skepticism. Another thing that I found really interesting uh, is looking at the, the core values of science. I think uh, you both point towards you know, things like tentativeness and uh, openness to change as a core value. What do we mean by tentativeness and openness to change being core values of science? So tentativeness is a fundamental part of science is that, again, back to they don't say, scientists don't say we proved this, we say we find support for this, it's a tentative conclusion until it's well substantiated. And then when it's well substantiated, we have consensus science and we know that we have a theory of evolution, a, you know, cert, a, an understanding of how climate change is happening that have been supported in many places. But I think what, what's problematic is there are a lot of people who expect certainty from science. And the coronavirus has been really interesting in that regard. It's a novel coronavirus, remember, because we've never seen it before. So scientists have had to be doing all this work as we go quickly to try to understand it. People can remember a year ago that they were wiping down their groceries when they came in the house or leaving them in the garage for a day <laughs> to make sure there were no fomites. And then scientists discovered it was not fomites, it was respiratory, it was airborne. And so the guidance changed. For people who expect certainty all the time for science, that was a sign of flip-flopping. That was problematic. That was, they don't know what they're talking about. Instead of understanding that this is the kind of way in which science evolves. And so the American public was getting a crash course in scientific uncertainty, but those who were not particularly scientifically literate had a hard time following that. And we talk about how Lee McIntyre refers to a scientific attitude. And a scientific attitude is a openness to new ideas and a willingness to change your mind uh, based on evidence worthy of that change. And so that's something that um, really relates to tentativeness and uncertainty. Uh, we wanna be open to change when that change is warranted. And we wanna make change in our ideas about science when that is warranted. And that's a challenge for the public to understand because as the novel coronavirus presented many new uh, moments for us to change our thinking, that created a lot of uh, suspicion and sometimes outright distrust. And, and so we have to do a better job educating the general public about what science is, how they know, and why they would change their mind based on new evidence. And just to interject here, <laughs> we need to get politics out of it. I mean, that's really one of the problems. There was a, a lovely piece on how Portugal has managed to get so many more people vaccinated than the U.S. has. And in part, it was because they simply removed politics from the process. 
This was not something being advocated by political leaders. It was being advocated by health officials and the military. And they had some officer who stood up and made all these claims and people trusted it. And we have such poor trust in our political, many of our political leaders that it has become really politicized and problematic. And that has made a mess of it in the US. I was actually gonna ask about that next um, in, in its own way. So, uh, you know, th there's been an issue, I, I think that, that it's been covered in the news with uh, certain segments of the population being vaccine hesitant. And, you know, let, let's say you're um, an African-American and you know the history of things like the Tuskegee uh, syphilis yeah. studies maybe there's uh, knowledge about uh, racism and what has been done with racism in the name of, of science. Uh, what would you say to people that have that sort of reaction looking at the sort of history of science and, and racism and what are they maybe missing about all of it? Well, one thing I think we have not sufficiently done is discuss legitimate vaccine hesitance from vaccine hesitance caused by reading conspiracy theories on Facebook. The African-American community has historically been mistreated by science and by the medical community. And that persists to this day. It's not something from the past. It's something that continues now with massive health disparities, access to uh, excellent health care. And so there are definitely strong reasons for someone to be skeptical if you're from an underserved community, if you're African-American. But what I would suggest is that um, they have the opportunity to hear about how vaccines um, were developed and invented, uh, including by African-American doctors and leaders in vaccine development. They should get questions answered as anyone has a legitimate question should. You know, but we always say, talk to your doctor. And there is another disparity. Do, uh, does everyone have access to a doctor to talk to? One of the reasons why some places have uh, done better, uh, notably Israel and Great Britain, some people have hypothesized this because everyone knows where to go to get their information in a socialized medicine environment. But someone in the United States who doesn't have a regular physician or doesn't have equal access to good quality health care, go talk to your doctor. It's really something difficult for them to do. So we really should separate out people with legitimate barriers to health care, to health care information, and to vaccination as vaccine hesitant from someone who's vaccine hesitant because their friend on Facebook shared a conspiracy theory with them. Yeah, I was just going to add to that too. I think, you know, when it, when it came to the vaccine initially, I, I, I sort of, you know, maybe I had my own bit of hesitancy very early on because I was, I was wanting something like, um, I, I, I initially had wanted to wait for uh, full FDA approval of say the Pfizer vaccine uh, would you guys consider that legitimate or how, how do we differentiate between what is sort of maybe a legitimate concern and what isn't? I would say anyone's concern is, is legitimate be, to them, right? So if, for example, my niece had heard that vaccines cause infertility, that's a legitimate concern. It's not a legitimate 
scientific fact because it does not cause infertility. But if you've heard that, that's a legitimate concern. So anyone's concern could could potentially potentially be legitimate. Some of them aren't. Uh, the idea that there's microchips in the vaccine is not legitimate because there's no such thing as microchips small enough to fit through a needle. But the but the idea that perhaps it causes side effects or infertility, those are quote legitimate concerns if if they worry you or they keep you from getting the vaccine. And the way for that to be ameliorated is for those people to get actual uh, sound answers to their concerns. And my niece did get those answers from her doctor, did get vaccinated. And so you can ameliorate le legitimate concerns um, about vaccination through providing better information. And I think helping people to understand the kind of choice they're making. So in your case, for example, um, if I were had been talking to you, say, as a relative during that period, I would probably want you to know what the process was like to get that early approval and what the process would look like to get full approval. It was the process was exactly the same. It was the number of people and the length of time since vaccination that changed. But the process was the same in terms of how they went about approving it. And then maybe try to help you figure out, is it really worth waiting longer to get it? Or is your quality of life going to be compromised and your fear, your risk management, et cetera, if you wait? So I think there are, you know, Gail and I talk a lot about the movable middle, you know, people who are persuadable, people who can change their minds about these things. And often that happens with rational, compassionate, curious listening. Yeah, and I, I was going to say, I guess I was moved a, a bit by it because I ended up, you know, get, getting the vaccine uh, sooner than I had initially expected. Um, so I guess I was moved to, uh, you know, I, I guess I was part of that movable middle. In yeah. other words, you know, it, it's interesting what you said, Gail. I just wanted to stick on this for a moment because you said, you know, if if someone hears a personal anecdote about infertility and the the vaccine, you know, it is very legitimate to them and. I guess I think a lot of times uh, we can sort of be like, oh, this person believes this. They're, you know, crazy and, you know, they're just uh, irredeemable or dumb or and that probably isn't the best way to uh, approach these things and to actually, you know, get people to accept science. Right. Well, I would say that. 0% of people who've been called out for being dumb decided that to then go get the vaccine. So I don't think that's an effective strategy. As Barbara mentioned, empathy, um, listening to what their concerns are and trying to address their concerns. Because as I said, a concern is legitimate to them. So um, it's definitely not great to be bashing uh, the integrity and the intelligence of people you're trying to persuade. It's not an effective strategy at all. You know, I think the other thing is we have to start thinking instead of how in the world is it that people think this, we need to also think who's benefiting from having them think this? Who is it that has persuaded them to think this way and why? You know, and a lot of what we've looked at in the book is what, what has happened in various campaigns over the year to manufacture doubt, as Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway talk about it. So when you've got PR firms that go back to the R.J. Reynolds period 
of getting people to disavow the link between tobacco smoking and cancer, and then those same firms helping Exxon sow doubt and about climate change. So we've had 30 years that we've just wasted while Exxon worked hard to get people to continue to put gas in their cars because they didn't want them to think that there was it was causal. And so just question today, always, who got them to think this and why? Right, and just today while we're recording this episode, there's testimony occurring in Congress regarding Facebook's structural algorithm techniques that uh, pull people down rabbit holes. We like to say people fall down a rabbit hole, but they don't really fall. They're really drawn. They're drawn through the way the algorithms are constructed to uh, draw more eyeballs and more clicks to the content. And unfortunately, misinformation um, is a little bit more sexy, a little bit more appealing, a little bit more intriguing, and people do click on it. And that creates more opportunities for them to present more misinformation. So there's quite a controversy occurring right now regarding how much is Facebook responsible for drawing people down rabbit holes. They are purporting to be responsible and take down misinformation, but the testimony today suggests they haven't yet done enough. And the whole point is simply to get them looking at more ads and to make money. So that's the testimony that's being given right now. And that's incredibly problematic. I mean, we really need big tech to step up and take responsibility for a lot of the misinformation and disinformation campaigns that have fueled anti-science attitudes and science denialism about things that matter significantly to the planet. I mean, this is, this is really huge. And I think about the, the ways that some of this has happened. So I'll, just to call out some good examples, both Twitter and Pinterest a couple years ago decided that if anybody searched for anti-vax information on their sites, they would immediately get a link to the World Health Organization, the American Pediatric Association, that is CDC. They would immediately see links to things that gave them accurate information. So much more could happen like that. And that was done when we had this anti-vax movement going on around childhood vaccinations. Obviously now it's even more significant, but the same thing could be true about climate change. It could be true about all kinds of major pressing issues. Where do you get accurate information and how can you be led there directly rather than the reverse, which is what Facebook has been doing. Let us give you some ugly, nasty, emotional, heated information. I mean, they're also looking at the fact that it's this negativity and fear that draws people very often to clicking on those things. We've got it. We've got to move away from that. I want to get into the sort of psychology of science now, but first, uh, I just wanted to add, with regards to what I was saying earlier about, uh, you know, I think it's easy for some people to just start bashing people that, uh, you know, believe something that, that you know, I, I would say is kind of wacky, like the idea of microchips and, and vaccines and whatnot. I guess what I was trying to ask is, how, how can we sort of talk to people that, you know, have these sort of science denial ideas? Well, I think the first thing is to talk to them. That's one thing that we don't see enough of. We're all in our information bubbles. We're all in our social bubbles. We have self-sorted in this country into like-minded neighborhoods and communities. 
And so I think the very first step is to communicate across. Um, when I talk to people with different points of view, I find out things that they they think are, are just standard things that are true that I've never even heard of. And I'm surprised to hear that they believe. So um, that's one thing that we haven't done enough of and we do less and less of it all the time, which is communicate with people with different points of view and find out what they're thinking and why. Be curious, really, like marshal your curiosity and try to figure out why are people thinking the things they think? And is there a way to come back at them with factual information, sources of that information, and do it in a compassionate, caring way? or refer them to other people they trust who you know are likely to give them more accurate information. I had a relative who wasn't gonna get the shot because he thought that he had too many underlying conditions and it would be bad for him. Uh, by contrast, he really needed it for that reason. But I um, wasn't making a lot of progress with him and said, I think you need to talk to your doctor. He did the next day and the doctor said, oh, absolutely, this is why you need to get the vaccine. And he went and got it. So I think we often need to think about who else do they trust? I think pastors in some communities, and this has been particularly true in the African-American community, that there are pastors who have been leaders in helping people get vaccinations, even opening up clinics, because those are trusted people in many areas. So we have to, we have to think about that as well. So then in regards, and this is for Barbara, you, you written a previous book called Personal Epistemology, The Psychology of Beliefs About Knowledge and Knowing. Is there any relationship between that book and uh, some of the things you cover in this book, or, or is there any connections that could be made between the two? Oh, absolutely. And uh, we have a chapter on what is called epistemic cognition. And that's what psychologists call the field of research on how people think about knowledge and knowing. What is it people believe knowledge is? Where do they think it comes from? How do they think they know something? It's, it's an entire field that helps us understand a lot of science denial, doubt, and resistance. And just to give you a simple example of a scheme that some psychologists talk about, which is that many people are uh, kind of stuck in absolutist thinking. They think that knowledge is black and white, right and wrong, it's certain, it's handed down from authority, it's a simple collection of facts. And if that's true, if they believe that's true, then it's very easy for them to get drawn in by more authoritarian leaders who simply say, here's the truth, I'm the one who can give it to you, you just know this, trust me, this is the way to go. That's really problematic when we're talking about things that are so much more nuanced and complex and where politicians have vested interest. Another stance that some people take is what's called multiplism, which is, ah, it's, it's all just opinions. It's all up for grabs. There's no way to adjudicate what might be true. And that plays into the hands of the post-truth society. So if you've got leaders saying, oh, well, you know, we don't know what's true and there is no truth anymore, then people just quit caring. They can just bow out and think it's not worth it. So the third level that a lot of people talk about is what's called evaluativism where you are able to evaluate evidence, look at the criteria for whether something is true or not. You can learn to vet the authorities, the expertise, that kind of thing. So all of it plays in well to what we're 
talking about in terms of what people's epistemic beliefs are, what they think knowledge is, who they trust, why they trust them. And as I said before, many people have many epistemic authorities in their lives, many people they go to for knowledge. So we have to help them expand that and understand which ones are to be trusted. When it comes to the sort of hard facts or, or maybe um, inferences that we can make about the relationship between uh, personal belief systems, even material interests or education levels, are there, are there any connections between those things and science denial? Well, sure, there, there are some. As Barbara mentioned, if you are at this more evaluativist level where you are willing to evaluate information, having that scientific attitude we talked about, being open to new information, being willing to change your mind, then you actually tend to be more accepting of science. And we know that people with higher education levels are more accepting of science. It's not 100% correlation though. And we do see people, even well-educated individuals who have um, hesitancy, doubt, uh, resistance, or, or denial. And that's probably due to being engaged in a certain social circle that promotes that or in a media circle that promotes that. So education alone is not the answer, although we would definitely, as professors at universities and educators, promote more science education. There's no doubt that that would be helpful. That isn't enough. Uh, these structural issues we've discussed about um, the purveyors of misinformation are part of the problem as well. And I guess w when it comes to that that personal belief aspect, I guess, you know, when, when I was going to college, I think uh, one of the hot topic issues was always uh, religion versus science. And I always, I think I always took the I guess I didn't know this until recently, but I think Stephen Jay Gould uh, advocated a sort of non-overlapping magisteria was his term for it, um, where he sort of said, you know, science and religion each represent different areas of inquiry. And that's sort of how I always felt about it. But it seems like a lot of people think that there has to be this um, constant collision between, uh, you know, religion and science or now even political beliefs in science, but is that really the case? Well, it certainly depends on who you ask. Um, we definitely don't feel that that conflict has to be there. And there's famous examples of individuals who have resolved that conflict quite notably for themselves. So, you know, Ken Miller is an example of a, a cell biologist and evolutionary biologist who is a, a, a devout Catholic a person of faith and has written extensively about his own personal resolution of these issues in one book called Finding Darwin's God. So there are notable examples. Uh, Catherine Hayhoe, who is an evangelical Christian and a leader in the climate science uh, movement and a climate scientist herself. So there are notable examples of individuals who have resolved any perceived conflict that they have. Um, people tend to foment that conflict, I believe, and I think they do that for their own interests. And as Barbara said earlier, the successful countries have depoliticized, not politicized the science of vaccination. 
So if somebody is promoting um, political or religious uh, discord with science, they may have some interest in doing that. It's not necessarily inherent because I agree with Stephen Jay Gould that science asks and answers different questions, questions about the material natural world, and therefore certainly can be argued that they shouldn't be weighing in on non-material uh, endeavors, such as whether there's a God. That should not be a scientific question because it is not a material question. The other thing Stephen Jay Gould was famous for saying is there are no moral lessons in nature. You know, if you look at nature, you know, there's parasites that invade a living organism and keep it alive long enough to eat most of it before they kill it. That, that's, that's not great. It's not a great moral lesson for us as human beings. And he was famous for saying, you can't, you can't look to um, science to test issues of non-material issues of faith and, and uh, otherworldly issues of whether there's a, a God. And you also can't look to science for issues of faith. So he saw them as distinct and there are people who, uh, who are very clear about that distinction. Others try to muddy the waters and we feel like that's not helpful. Yeah, and I was just going to add to that, and may maybe this would be something you guys can both comment on, is um, I, I feel like we need uh, those figures like Stephen Jay Gould, because, I mean, at a very young age, I think it was important for me to read someone like Gould, because, yeah. you know, it, it allowed me to think differently about some of these issues, and it also helped me clear up a, a lot of misconceptions. You know, when I was younger, uh, and this was kind of foolhardy of me to think this, but I didn't know any better. I would worry about things like uh, when talking about evolution, you know, I would think, uh, does evolution inherently mean that everything is a uh, tooth and claw or, you know, social Darwinism? And, and you come to realize that, that ultimately uh, social Darwinism is something very different from what we talk about uh, when it comes to Darwin and evolution in scientific terms. And I think people like Gold were educators that sort of could clear up our misunderstandings. Gould was one of the best science communicators uh, as a scientist that I've ever seen. His work is brilliantly written and accessible and he, he did a masterful job of communicating these complex issues. But you're right, it all gets sort of uh, conglomerated together in, in people's minds. Another thing to realize is that uh, we humans have built a structure uh, around us. Uh, we're not living out uh, on a savanna with, without uh, shelter and technology. So of course we have still biological evolution occurring. We can see that in the virus mutating and producing new strands, it happens all the time. But we also live as humans in, in an environment where we can create vaccines and we have shelter and we do other things that ameliorate some of the impact of how our our biology is changing. So everything you for cut sure. out there for a second. You said uh, of some of how our biology is changing. I was just saying that we can't control how our biology changes and reacts in response to changing situations. We see with the vaccine that there is uh, a good resistance to some of the 
strains that have evolved, such as the Delta variant. So we can have some impact on how evolution affects us day to day. Also, because we have a, an environment that we structure, we build, we build the structure around ourselves that helps protect us in some level from negative change. However, we have a planet that is being impacted by climate uh, change that humans are driving, and we will not be able to adapt quickly enough to grow our food sources and to keep from losing too many species that uh, we would adapt quickly enough. So while we can do some things as humans through technology and through uh, structures that we can build, we can't outrun something like the virus and we can't outrun something like climate change. I, I wanna go back for a minute to your admiration for Stephen Jay Gould, um, both of you, all three of us. I mean, we, you know, I think Gail and I wanted to talk in the book to multiple audiences and one of them is science communicators. And we care a lot about how science gets communicated. And I'm really struck by your example of how this affected you as a young student reading Stephen Jay Gould and helped you think about science differently. And I think we need more and more of that. We need for people to step up and be translators of science and communicate not just the scientific facts, but the scientific process to others. And I, Gail and I've been collecting examples of this recently. And my, my favorite right now is Ed Young, who writes for The Atlantic and who has been covering the pandemic so well. And he has a beautiful essay that just appeared as the introduction to the new volume on science and nature writing that talks about how what he was doing um, in science writing when the pandemic kept, came along and why he got pulled into covering that. But he's done a, just a brilliant job of translating the science to the lay person through the Atlantic and through other columns. And we need so much more of that. We were dismayed to find that we now have a third of the science reporters we had only a couple decades ago in our big national newspapers, that many places do not have science columns or science sections or regular reporting on science. So the public has been let down in many ways by the media that have not given us good science reporting and voluminous science reporting and interpretive science reporting in recent years. And we need so much more of that. That also brings up another interesting point, and I didn't mention it in the notes, but I, I think one of the reasons it's so hard to talk about a lot of this stuff is, you know, I, I think a lot of us have at times in our life believed something that, you know, later on we think is, you know, dumb or inane or yeah. uh, just wrongheaded, but sometimes it's hard to even admit to that because, you know, yeah. I, I think a lot of people want to think, oh, I, I haven't been wrong that much in the past. And how do we sort of break through that? Because that, that seems to be an element of, of our psychology. We, you know, don't want to admit that we're wrong all the time. <laughs> well, my area yeah, well, of research is conceptual change, which is how do people change their thinking? And one thing we know is people can be resistant to changing their thinking. And they absolutely are resistant to being told that they're wrong. Nobody likes to be wrong. We don't like to be wrong. No one likes to be wrong. And so, as we mentioned earlier, you're not going to change people's thinking by telling them they're, they're wrong and just leaving it at that. One of the things that we do in our research is we explain to people, hey, you may think this, you may have heard this uh, incorrect scientific fact, but 
Uh, that's not true. It's not what scientists think. They think this, and here's why. They provide an explanation for why that science is what it is. And we find that uh, refutation technique, we call it in our research, helpful to, to uh, debunk misconceptions. But of course, people don't like to be just flat out told they're wrong. And I wouldn't advocate approaching people that way. Yeah, the other thing is that another audience we write for are educators. And one of the things that I've been interested in in recent years is what's being called intellectual virtues or epistemic virtues and thinking about how is it that we model, for example, intellectual humility? What's it like if, if we are teachers or professors or colleagues or whatever our role might be to say to the people we work with, you know, I used to think this, but now I think this, and here's why, you know, and then to offer the evidence that made you change your mind. So you're modeling both the humility of someone who has been wrong and learned from it, as well as the process of how you change your mind. What does it mean to rely on evidence? What kind of evidence persuaded you? I found once I read some of this philosophical literature, it changed my teaching. You know, I would think more often about how to make that process in my own learning transparent because learning is a process of change and a process of surrendering old ideas and embracing new ones. And we have to model that to other people. And that's the strength of science too, the ability to change. If we were trying to confront the coronavirus with science from 200 years ago, we would probably be very ineffective. So the strength of science is its change and the strength of adopting that scientific attitude towards change that we promote in our students and we hope to promote uh, in the community at large is being open to change because that's exactly how we can be more effective in dealing with the climate crisis and pandemics and other science-based concerns. So before we start wrapping up, uh, I also wanted to get into this issue of expertise uh, versus personal experience and anecdote. And I guess why why are personal experiences and anecdotes uh, so persuasive to people's uh, you know psychology? I mean, we, we had the whole thing with uh, I think it was Nicki Minaj or one of these other Twitter celebrities yeah. was talking yeah. about you know oh this happened when my friend's friend took the vaccine. Why are people so easily persuaded yeah. by personal experience? It's such a good question. You know, I, uh, social psychologist uh, Dick Nisbet and Lee Ross wrote a number of pieces about this some years ago of talking about a human preference for anecdote. That and, and you you know if you want to look at evolutionary explanations, you can think about how we had to learn from people in our tribe and we had to take these stories and figure out and infer from them. But we have a lot more information than that now. And yet we're still kind of wired to lean on the story. And uh, Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist talks about system one versus system two thinking. And that system one is this rapid intuitive response to something. And that's what we often just fall back on. Oh, it happened to her. So it might happen to me. I need to just move on that. And system two thinking is the slower, more reflective, analytical way of thinking about things, more rational. And so trying to get people to back off, not just rely on the anecdote, 
uh, not be at the mercy of the good story, but to learn to really vet information is important. And yet we, as I'm sure you do, often rely on stories as a way to illustrate the kind of evidence that we're talking about. And so learning how to marshal those studies, those stories effectively is also important, but they should be illustrative of a broader pattern of scientific findings, not some random out there Nicki Minaj kind of story. And I think the danger on social media is that it really plays on system one thinking and it's harder to get system two thinking going. And again, a shout out to what Twitter did last year where they suddenly started sending you a little note that if you tried to forward something you hadn't opened, they said, would you like to read it first? And we've talked to several people who've said that really changed their thinking. They looked at it and went, huh, all I did was read the headline and I was gonna forward that. Maybe I should slow down, open it up, look at it and go, oh, whoops, that's not what I thought it was. I'm not gonna share that. But social media favors system one thinking, unfortunately, and the power of the anecdote. And I, I was just gonna add to that. I mean, I, I think what's hard to untangle for a lot of people and I think this is especially becoming true as, as people become, uh, in my view, too tribal about things they don't need to be tribal about. I think uh, yeah. people will think that there to has to, pe I, I think people will sometimes uh, say, you know, what's better, system one thinking or system two thinking, or what's better, quantitative or qualitative? And it's not necessarily that one is better than the other. They're just different <laughs> no. and they have different uses in, in different contexts. Excellent example. Well, right. You know, we say you don't want to use system two thinking when you see a child's ball, you know, come out into the street in front of your car. You want to think really quickly because there might be a child chasing after that. You want to stop your car immediately. You, you don't want to ponder, geez, where did that ball come from? Let's think of all the alternative explanations. No, you want system one thinking there. System one thinking is incredibly important and, and we use it in, uh, to save ourselves and others probably on a day-to-day -day basis without realizing it. But when you want to evaluate competing claims about science, you really need to use system two. So in regards to solutions, uh, what are some of the solutions to science denialism and maybe being able to talk about these issues, because I think that's the big thing for, and I, at least for the everyday person, right? I, I think it's different for maybe policymakers and educators, but for the everyday person, I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to talk about a lot of these issues, say at the Thanksgiving dinner, you know, because maybe, maybe you have an uncle that is like all in on, I don't let, I don't want the vaccine, climate change is fake. How can we work through these things? Well, in our book, we have solutions we hope will be helpful to individuals, to educators, to scientists who want to communicate about their work, uh, to science communicators to enhance their incredibly important role, and to policy makers. But it is interesting, JG, that you know it used to be that the two topics you couldn't discuss at Thanksgiving were religion and politics, but now there's three, religion, politics, and science. And that's really regrettable because as we mentioned earlier, um, you know, the pandemic uh, you know, should never have been politicized because coronavirus does not know your political party and doesn't care. Um, the science, if it's, if it's really 
good science and useful science pertains to everyone, no matter who they are. And so it's really unfortunate that it's been politicized. So when we have these solutions, we hope are helpful to people in our book. For individuals, it's about, as we mentioned, listening, being open-minded, um, invoking your own system too before you share clickbait head headlines. And for educators, it's also being open to learning about science enough that you can teach your students in K through 12 and higher ed how to be open to science, how to be critical thinkers, how to search effectively for scientific information and not be drawn down rabbit holes of misinformation. So for science communicators, it's know your audience and be aware of all these misconceptions and emotional and identity traps that could mislead people and communicate effectively about the science and how scientists know what they know and why they don't know everything and what, what, what is it that remains to be known and why don't we yeah. know it yet? And I, you know, back to the how to talk to individuals, I would say be curious, be inquiring, find out what somebody actually thinks. Often it's not as far afield or as wacky as you might think. There might be some resistance that can be addressed with basic facts. And other times it might be that you're not on the same page at all, but you can learn to hear each other. And uh, Gail and I've talked about this experience I had last year when I gave a public talk and a man asked if he would on science denial and a man asked if, if we could get together for coffee. And we talked for a really long time about his uh, outright denial of a number of things that I think scientists would know are absolutely true, whether that was evolution or uh, climate change and its human causes. He was on the other side of where the scientists might be. But what happened was the more we talked, the more I thought, well, I need to find common values. I need to find a place where we connect and discovered we both had grandchildren. So I talked about my fears about the planet and where we were headed and what we were leaving to our grandchildren. And he was able to engage in the conversation completely differently at that point and confessing that that did worry him too that he was concerned and that it was really a matter of economics. How are we gonna get ourselves out of this? So for some people, it's easier to deny because it's fearful to accept the reality. It's easier to just deny it than to start thinking about solutions that may be costly or difficult in our lifestyles. But we got to a good place of understanding by the end of the conversation. I, I think the, the flip side to that is, I, I understand at the same time why it's frustrating for a lot of people, I mean, you mentioned Andrew Wakefield earlier. Um, yeah. And figures like that, it really does sort of upset me when you have uh, figures like Andrew Wakefield or, um, you know, celebrities like Jenny McCarthy saying, uh, yes. you know, vaccines yeah. are bad, vaccines are bad. Yeah. And to me, it's like, you know, it's not just an opinion. No, that's not just your opinion. These things yeah. have real impacts because what if, uh, yes. you know, a parent hears, Jenny McCarthy spewing all this, or here's Andrew Wakefield saying this, and then their kids don't get vaccinated. You know, it, it's- Or the governor the of a state. Yeah. Yeah, and we mentioned Nikki Minaj earlier, the reason people were so concerned about her tweet is I think she has something like 22 million followers. So you have to be thoughtful about how people in, are interpreting what you're, what you're saying and be careful not to fall into that um, trap of, 
spreading misinformation, even if it's inadvertent. We also need to do a much better job in education of helping people understand who it's worth listening to when you're trying to make a decision about vaccinations and who it's not. Yeah, I would definitely not advocate listening to politicians or, um, you know. Well, not blanket. <laughs> yeah, not blanketly. I mean, your best, your best advice on an, a topic uh, in science is to go to the expert on the topic and not someone who has a particularly different expertise. And that's not really the way you're going to find the best information. I was gonna ask um, Barbara, the, the other reason I mentioned Wakefield is I, I think when you talk about these subjects, uh, people will say, well, Dr. Andrew Wakefield or uh, with the COVID stuff now, people always say to me, uh, Dr. Simone Gould says ivermectin, and I'm I'm like, how do you how do you respond to these people that are trusting, uh, you know, someone because oh, uh, this person's a doctor. Oh, I think that's because of um, you know the social media portraying a particular person's expertise as as being touted when in fact they don't have the reliable expertise that you need. So manufacturing doubt against the true experts of infectious disease like Dr. Fauci has been a thing that we've seen happen while lobbing on to people who perhaps have a very different area of expertise. An example would be there was a chiropractor who in Florida was writing uh, notes for why an individual student couldn't wear a mask to school. Well, chiropractic care has nothing to do with mask wearing in the, during a pandemic. So that person really wasn't the best expert in that particular case. So it's knowing how to evaluate the expertise directly uh, of whoever's involved. So, and what, what a lot of people have talked about is that we all have a bounded understanding of science. None of us, including scientists, have a complete understanding of other parts of science or the deep workings of science. And so we have to trust experts. That's how it works. I mean, there's some things we can learn for ourselves, but on many things, we have to default to expertise. And so knowing what experts to trust is really important. And again, we need politicians to get out of the way on this so that they're not casting doubt on very reputable people like Fauci, for example. You know, that's, that has become really problematic. And I think the other thing we want to see is I don't wanna dump on all politicians by any means. What I'd like to say is that we need politicians who defer to scientific expertise, who really do trust the scientist in the areas in which they need expert advice and can listen to them and use that information to shape policy. We have had too little of that in recent years and we are, we are seeing a return of it now that I value highly. And I think one of the things that individuals can do is think about who you vote for, whether it's a local, state or federal level, what is it that we can do to bring people into power who care about climate change and listen to expertise on it? And I guess in closing, well, I, you don't, I, I wanted to ask you about this because I know you mentioned it very briefly in, in the book and it's a subject that I've had like a, an interest in, but um, I know you're both in psychology. Uh, 
is there anything that we can learn from, I guess there's this issue of uh, the replication crisis. For my listeners, would you, either of you be willing to like describe what that is and maybe how it uh, sort of can give us an idea about how science evolves and how things aren't infallible at times? Sure, I'd be happy to speak to that, uh, JG. So it was particularly in social psychology that people were discovering failures to replicate. So science has to be replicated. A single study on whether you can lose weight by putting chocolate on your toast in the morning is not enough. You need replication, which means the study has to be repeated. There there needs to be bigger samples. There needs to be multiple uh, replications, not just one. So, it's really controversial as to whether there was a um, a replication crisis at all. Are you still hearing me? Am I frozen? No, 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 I can hear you. Yeah. Okay, I'll start over. <laughs> it's really controversial whether there is a replication crisis at all. Some people in psychology say that really it was single studies with the replication having a small sample size that failed to reach statistical significance that accounted for a lot of the failures to replicate. So whether or not there's a replication crisis is actually quite controversial. But the lesson to be learned from it is single studies are not what we want to rest our decision-making on in psychology science or in any uh, other kinds of science, what you want to trust, what you want to put your decision-making into is science that has been replicated many, many times. Back to the IPCC report, that's a consensus science report. And that's what you should trust. It has many, many, many replications, not a single study, and then a single failure to replicate that single study. So think about cold fusion also on the on the hard science side, that that was a big breakthrough, it seemed like, and then it couldn't be replicated. So that's why we want replication of these big ideas that somebody's discovered, but then nobody can actually replicate them. The problem in psychology that we've seen is that there's not a lot of benefit to running a replication study. So the journals tend to print novel ideas. If there's a novel idea that gets printed and you want to go run exactly the same study, no journals are going to to print that. So we tweak them. We do something else. We try to figure out how to advance them, move them along. So I think that's what has concerned people is should we be doing more replication of some of the key findings that have driven the field? So in closing, I want to give both of you a chance to Uh, let my listeners know how they can get a hold of the new book. Uh, But also, I know a lot of people that are just despairing more and more lately, especially when it comes to this issue of uh, climate change um, and things like COVID. Uh, What do you say to the people that are uh, maybe becoming a a little bit doom and gloom about everything? Is is there still uh, hope that we can make it through these things and, you know, have a sort of better future where there's less science denial. Yeah, doom and gloom will get us nowhere. 
I mean, it's it's an understandable response. And certainly we have been there. We all are if we're staying on top of the news. I mean, you're you're not awake if you're not feeling some doom and gloom right now. But in order to act, we have to move towards solutions and towards hope and towards figuring out how do we resolve this. And I'll say again, put people in elected offices that can make a difference and who do trust science and have scientific policymakers with them. And turn your gloom and doom into action and advocacy. So if you can become involved in the, the climate activism movement, if you yeah. can volunteer someplace at a homelessness shelter helping get people vaccinated, you will feel better uh, yeah. because taking action, of course, makes you feel better. And the more yeah. people who take action, it actually does create a better solutions-oriented society for us. I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, how can my listeners get a copy of the book? Well, you can go on Amazon and you can get it there. You can get it in a hard copy or Kindle format. We'd also encourage you to ask your local bookstore to get you a copy because we'd love to support local bookstores. And thank you again, Gil Sinatra and Barbara Hoffer, authors of the book, Science Denial, Why It Happens and What to Do About It. Thank you again. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Barbara Hoffer and Gil Sinatra, authors of Science Denial, Why It Happens, and What to Do About It. Check that book out if you can. Also, as always, if you appreciate the work here I'm doing at Parallax Views, then please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. New content should be arriving later this week for $5 tier and above supporters. There is everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. Any amount will help. So if you can, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And of course, at the $10 and $15 tiers, you get a producer's credit shout-out. So producer's credit shout-outs to... Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Catherine, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, join those listeners in supporting me at the $10 or $15 tiers of my Patreon page at once again patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I could really, really use your support. Starting to make a little bit of headway when it comes to where I want to be financially with this show and the funds that I need to keep it going. So I really appreciate everyone that has been contributing thus far. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. It's 
we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.